Well, hello everybody, how you doing? That's great. It's an honor to be here, and I love uh, Jeff and Valnay, and they are pastoral friends for life and for eternal life. And so it's an honor to be here. I love this church, I love the conference, and it is really a joy to be here. I hope you're encouraged to be here. You want to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and as you're doing that, uh, I wanted to let you know... (laughs) Uh, a little bit about my journey here. You know, most of you have done international travel, correct? How many, how many have traveled internationally? All right. You've gone to New Zealand. I get it. Okay. Uh, you know, to a foreign land. You're from Tasmania. That's, that's wild and crazy, right? Uh, interesting enough, when you travel that way, uh, you tend to, you know, lose track of time. Are you with me on that? And the farther that you go, the more flipped you get. And you get a little confused, and your meal times are off, and your sleep patterns are off, and you don't know what time is what. And right now I'm a little bit of that. Uh, but what's interesting is that as you do that, you feel a little unstable, correct? Uh, things just don't flow naturally, and all of a sudden you're just right in the middle of the day, and you're like, why am I exhausted? Well, you know, back home, it's already 1 a.m. in the morning, and you, you just your body's still not quite adjusting so you're a little bit unstable instead. If you get up too fast, you might get a little dizzy, you know, and you struggle with getting your meal times right. And anybody experience that little twistiness that happens as you eat something foreign to you? Anybody with me on that? Okay, all two of you. Thank you for agreeing and nodding. You know, you eat some of this stuff right here and it could wipe you out. You know what I mean? Uh, you got to be really careful uh, what you might. Uh, actually, I enjoy Vegemite. I do. Better than Marmite, too. Uh, it's, yeah, totally, right? Are you with me? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interesting enough, also, in our walk with the Lord, we can also feel a little bit unstable. Uh, things don't always function correctly, and we seem to be going along, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, this, this seemed to be working for me, and I was walking with the Lord, and I was walking in obedience, and I seemed like we had sweet communion, and now it's a little more difficult, or this trial, or this relationship has come up, or this problem, and it's caused me to feel a little bit unsteady. Well, the answer to that unsteadiness spiritually is actually Philippians chapter 4, and you're in the right place to actually walk that through. We're going to try to look at verses 1 through 9 today, tomorrow, and also on Sunday morning. And if you're going, you know, how can I grow firm How can I grow steady? Well, you've come to instep, and you've got your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and that's what we're going to look at tonight by way of introduction, verse 1, and try to talk about what that means to stand firm. It says this, take a look and read with me. I'll read from my version, and you read from yours, and hopefully they'll match up a little bit. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see... My joy and my crown, in this way, stand, what? Firm, a thumb, in the Lord, my beloved. Can you stand firm? You can stand firm spiritually, no matter what's happening externally, and no matter what's going on internally, you don't have to waver. You can actually walk in a steady manner. The Holy Spirit who is in you, if you're a believer, wants you to grow steadfast. The New Testament talks about being steadfast, consistent. And there are constant warnings in the New Testament about being unsteady or unsteadfast or not firm. In fact, Peter warns churches to follow sound doctrine or otherwise they'll stumble. They'll be unsteady. Paul He lovingly calls pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the church will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that they would be unsteady. He wants them to be steady. And then even uh, James describes the spiritually unstable as double-minded. You know, almost like they can't make up their mind. They're unstable. They vacillate between doubt and faith. Now, all of us in this room, if we are believers, want to be that person. What do you mean, that person? It's the person who's firm and steady. When there's a crisis, you want to be the person that's calm, right? When there's uh, real pressure, you want to be the person who's at peace. 
when there's an incredible trial, you want to be the person who's really trusting in the Word. It's standing firm, and that's what Paul's going to introduce in this particular passage. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we're going to look at, and it holds the keys that we're going to study each one of these in depth. There's several commands here, but they're summarized by and started by verse 1. Let's look at it again. My beloved brethren, therefore, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Now, most commentators believe that stand firm is actually content-wise the main verb of these next passages, these next verses. It's the one that kind of holds them all together, content-wise. Not contextually, but content. And it's really giving us the keys. Now, what are we going to study as we look at this particular passage? Now, you want to kind of know, this may determine whether you come back tomorrow or not. So let's give it to you. Standing firm, verses 2 through 8, is what we're going to look at. Verses 2 and 3 talks about standing firm when there's relational tension. Now, I know that some of you come from the ideal home and uh, the ideal marriage and the ideal you know, relationship with your kids and your grandkids, and you never have any relational tension with anyone. Now, I'd like to meet that person, but we all face it, correct? Well, Paul is actually going to direct the Philippians on how to stand firm in their relationships, especially as they get tense, as they get difficult. And he's going to deal with two women. He says, don't ignore it. I want to show you how to deal with it. And I think tomorrow is almost worth the price of the conference, which I don't know what that means. But it just, basically, it's an incredible passage. Uh, it actually is just life transforming for me, impacted my church family, and I want to share it with you as well. Then in verses 4 and 5, we'll look at together the, the manifesting of genuine joy, rejoicing, and then actually embracing honest humility. Now what's amazing about this is that God has given you an extremely powerful tool to impact people who don't know Christ in your community with the expression of humility. And we're going to look at it. It'll actually blow you away. And it's actually one of the funnest things that we can do in order to put Christ on display. And, and all we have to do is just recognize the opportunity. And we'll talk about that. That's verse four and five. And then we're going to take a look at verses six and seven about resting in dependent faith, not being anxious. None of us ever battle with that. And then responding to thankful prayer. You can't really be standing firm unless you're, you know, trusting in the Lord and, and not anxious. And then also praying. And then the interesting enough, on Sunday morning we're going to take a look at disciplining your thinking. In other words, if you want to stand firm, it's got to start in your mind. Your growth in Christ is a, a battleground with your thinking. And we're going to look at one of the most powerful verses on disciplining your thinking in the entire New Testament. I believe a verse you should memorize and you should live by. It'll absolutely transform your life if you pursue it. And that's, he's laid it out for us. And it'll help us to stand firm. And then obviously to wrap it up in verse 9, to model biblical obedience. These are the people through this passage who will stand firm. Pursuing these characteristics and these qualities and obeying these commands will help you to be a stable student, a steady saint. So you say, Chris, why would I want to stand firm? I'm so glad you asked. So point number one in your outline, the reasons necessary for standing firm. Why would you want to stand firm? Well, don't miss the very first word in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. What's the very first word in verse 1? Anybody? Therefore. And, uh, uh, therefore. Uh, I'm going to mess up the Australian accent massively here today. So understand, whenever you have a therefore, you always ask, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? Right? So there are four reasons why it's there. It's reaching back into the letter to the Philippians. So I'm going to give you four reasons that are listed here. That therefore is referring back to our heavenly citizenship that was just talked about in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Take a look at it right at the end of chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. He's talking about heaven and he expands on that and he pleads for the Philippians to stand firm in light of the fact that they're citizens of heaven. Therefore, and then he goes, stand firm. 
he basically says, hey, you're secure. Your ultimate future awaits you. And, and you should have courage here on earth. I mean, think about it practically. Can we for a second? Things can be bad now, but as a Christian, they're going to be better later. Amen? Yeah. Uh, you might die now, but in heaven you will what? Live forever. Right? And there's pressure now, but there's perfect peace later. And in light of your heavenly citizenship, you can stand firm now. It's supposed to encourage you. It's connected there. So have courage in whatever you're facing here on earth and stand firm. Stable people have a heavenly outlook. They have a heavenly outlook. If you want to be mature, you're going to think more about heaven and less about earth. You really are. And you say, well, I don't want to be too heavenly minded. Have you ever met anyone who was too heavenly minded? I've not yet one Christian yet who was too heavenly minded. That's our hope. That's our future. I mean, think about heaven for a second. I'm getting off track now. Think about the Pacific Ocean. Is the Pacific Ocean big? Please say yes. Imagine flying over it. It takes you forever to fly over it. But at some point, you know, you lower down out of 30,000 feet and you get down really close. You open the door and you drop a rock into the Pacific Ocean. That rock hitting the water is time. Your life on planet Earth compared to the ocean of eternity, right? And when you have a heavenly mindset, you realize this is a very short slice of time. And if I have a greater eternal perspective, it's going to affect the way that I live here on planet Earth. So therefore, stand firm. There's another reason why therefore is there. He's reaching back a little farther to all of what you have written in chapter 3, which is to pursue Christ. Chapter 3 is about pressing on in your relationship with Christ. Now, what he describes in chapter 3 is that Christianity is not a decision, but a direction. It's not a religion, but it's a relationship. It isn't a moment, but a daily lifestyle. Uh, salvation isn't merely praying a prayer, but living 24-7, dependent on the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. It's unique. You're pursuing Christ. Therefore, Stand firm. It's all about Christ. And Christ isn't going to abandon you if you're His child. Therefore, don't give up. Don't get distracted. Don't grow passive. Therefore, stand firm. All this relationship, therefore, stand firm. Then, therefore, if you reach back a little bit farther, it's actually talking about all the commands that have been given in Philippians. Now, I know you're good Bible Bowl people, so take a look at these verses. Turn to Philippians 1.27, and then we're going to make our way forward. Way back in 127, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm, there's that verb again, in one spirit. Therefore, stand firm in unity together. He wants us to be standing firm together. And you're going to see that reaffirmed in chapter 4. And then turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Therefore, stand firm by being selflessness. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. 2, verse 12, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, stand firm in obedience to the Word of God. And then look at 2.14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Therefore, stand firm by guarding your mouth. And then chapter 3, verse 2. Take a look at chapter 3, three verse 2. He says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Stand firm against error. And then take a look at chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, enjoin in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. What he's saying is, therefore, stand firm in obedience. Therefore, stand firm. You say, what else could that therefore be there for? Well, it's also referencing everything he's talked about in the book of Philippians as it relates to the pressures that the Philippians are currently going through. We know when you read the Bible, you want to know, hey, what's really happening back then that's really bringing about what Paul would say to them? And as Paul writes this letter, he is under house arrest in Rome. Now, he's not in a dungeon He's not in a dark jail. He's in his own apartment. He's chained to a Praetorian guard. But he's able to receive visitors. 
He's able to talk. He's able to write the, 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 the letters in your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the prison epistles. And yet, while he's in there, there's a sense of persecution. He's actually in jail because of persecution by the Romans. Look at Philippians 1, verse 29. He says, Therefore it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to what? To suffer for His sake. So the church in Philippi was being persecuted by their Roman government for following Christ as Lord and not Caesar as Lord. That's starting to heat up a little bit. Not as bad as it's going to be under Nero. But they were speaking out and suffering for it. The Philippians were also being pressured by unsaved Judaizers. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. Again, we read it before. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. The church family was being pressured by Jewish legalists. And these legalists, what they wanted to do was say, in order for you to be saved, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. And again, that's a violation of salvation by grace alone. And therefore, Paul said, they're dogs. They're, they're upsetting you by trying to lay this on you. And then the other extreme, you know, instead of working your way to heaven, which is a violation of the gospel, there are people who were pushing them, and these pushers were the unsaved Gentile grace abusers. That's a great title, isn't it? The Gentile <laughs> unsaved grace abusers. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at 3.18. Philippians 3.18, right on the heels of this, it says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, these were the libertarians. You say, what's a libertarian? That's very popular today. They taught that God's grace and salvation meant that they could live any way they like and still enjoy assurance of salvation. So they pray a prayer, but because we're under grace, we can just live however we like. There's nothing's happened. Now, here's the problem with that. If you understand salvation correctly, right? When God saves you, He justifies you, correct? In other words, the righteousness of Christ falls on you and covers you like a robe, and your sin falls on Christ and is punished there, correct? Justification, all right? But something else happens to you the moment you're saved, and it's called regeneration. Ever heard of it? Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? What did he say? You must be what? Born again. That's regeneration. And that means God changes you. Changes your heart. So when you're saved, not only are you justified, but you're regenerated. And a regenerated heart means you now have a new heart. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. And that new heart, Romans 6.17 says, you want to obey even when you don't. Even when you fail to obey, you still want to obey. You just fell down in disobedience, but when you're laying there on the floor, you're going, yeah, but I still want to obey. Because He gave you a new heart that wants to. And a heart that's willing to do anything for Christ. And a heart that says, I want to worship you. He gave you that heart. He made that happen. You didn't work that out. God did it to you. And the grace abusers are saying, yeah, 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 grace is just a free ticket. Now live any way you like. But if you're genuinely saved, you want to obey. Even when you fail to. And therefore, that's why he says these guys are guilty of just pursuing their appetites. Their God is their appetites. And so they're being pressured by legalists on one side and libertines on the other side. That's pretty a lot of tension, right? And they don't have a written Bible like you have in their hands, so they're dependent on the prophets and the apostles and the scrolls that they've got to be kind of getting God's Word here and getting stable in, under this environment. So Paul writes this letter to clarify that. And they're being partitioned by division. By division. We're going to learn that uh, tomorrow morning. But in Philippians 1.27 it says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. One mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, look at that. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Stand firm in unity. 
So, therefore, okay, are you getting the context now? Therefore, it's because of our heavenly situation, because of our pursuit and relationship with Christ, because of all these commands that have given, and because of the unique pressures that are falling on the Philippians, therefore, stand firm. All this is going on. Hey, there are some of you here tonight have a massive amount of things going on in your life. And sometimes, does it not get overwhelming? Come on, would you agree to that? Would you say yes? Sometimes my life gets really complicated and it's overwhelming. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Their lives were overwhelming. And the number of attacks on the outside, on the inner issues that they're facing internally. And so he says, but therefore, stand firm. You can. You can stand firm. So he wants to encourage them to stand firm. The Philippians are suffering for Christ's sake. They're battling dissension. They're struggling to maintain unity. They they have false teachers and dogs and abusers of God's grace. But those are typically not the reasons that you need to stand firm. You might be in a difficult marriage. You might have a rebellious child or a difficult child. Maybe you're working through what to do with hostile relatives. Anybody have, don't raise your hand, hostile relatives. Especially if they're sitting here tonight. You should say, hey, do you like your parents? If they're in the room, don't raise your hand. You know, I, I don't not raise your hand, whatever. Uh, you know, it could be an unfair boss or a hard teacher or financial debt or a particular sin or a sinful bent. Whatever's going on, God the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, stand firm. Stand firm. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're losing your focus. Maybe you're just distracted. As this child, your heart's going to desire stability. We all want it to stand firm. And even though this is the most difficult of all of us to probably fully understand, you really can't stand firm in the truest sense unless you're part of a church that's committed to standing firm. You say, why would I say that? Why would I make that claim? Because that's exactly what he's saying here. He's speaking to a church to stand firm. We often read our Bibles and we go, me, 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 me. And actually, he's talking about us, 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 us. And he's talking about we are to work on this. We're to practice this. And we're to help each other stand firm. And you know how that works. You know, you have a a little bit of an unstable day and a brother or sister comes up, puts her arm around you and says, I'm praying for you and holds you up. There's a sense we help each other stand firm. So that's what's in view here. You'll never be able to stand firm if you're isolated from the church of Jesus Christ. The local church. God designed for us to stand firm together. We're sheep, right? And the one that's really in danger is the one that's way out there on their own. So don't be that one. Standing firm has a lot to do with doctrine, living like Christ, maturing. It's a commitment that we can only keep as God's family together. And unless you're part of a church and it has a high value to deepen you in the Word of God, you'll never be stable. So that's number one. That's the first point. The second point in your outline is the reassurances of Paul to motivate standing firm. The reassurances of Paul, point number two. Now I love that Paul expresses affection here. And it's kind of like when he opened the letter of the Philippians, he expressed these same uh, expressions of affection and now he does it again in chapter 4 so look at chapter 4 verse 1 one more time and see if you can pick out the three personal affections or reassurances he says my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved so did, did you catch them it's pretty obvious right Three reassurances, three motivators, three encouragements. Now his words, you know, you're tempted, I know, to think, well, he's just manipulating it. No, he's under the Spirit of God. This is not manipulation. This is all genuine. And he is so close to the Philippians, he can't help but share his affections for them, which ultimately point to Christ's affections for you. So what does he say? How does he reassure the Philippians? Well, first in your outline, you are intimate family. That's what he says to them. You're you're intimate family. He calls them my beloved brethren. They're family. Paul was the one who led them to Christ. He was the one who established the church. They're deeper than family. He, he literally says, quote, loved brothers of me. That's my beloved brethren. It's loved brothers of me. My beloved brothers. 
Now, some of you come from horrible families, difficult families, but when you became a Christian, you became a part of his family, right? And the great thing is that I'm a part of your family, and you're a part of the family that I have in California. We're, we're in that expression, right? And if you came and fellowshiped with us, you'd go, hey, these people are family. Just like I sense that from you. We're family, right? We're together in this. And the amazing thing, under the inspiration of the Spirit, who doesn't lie, Paul told the Philippians what? In Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul reminds the Philippi and, and you of the affection of Christ. Pursuing Christ is not an indifferent command. Standing firm is, is a loving encouragement. Loving encouragement. Now think about what this reveals. How many of you, and don't raise your hand on this one either, have gotten a bill in the mail? And the bill was from a company that you don't exactly like all that much, and the bill was totally wrong. Remember that? Remember when you got the bad bill, and it was like, instead of $100, it was 1000 or instead of 1000 it was $10,000. You know, somebody put a wrong zero in there. Remember that? And you called them up, and they were rude to you. Remember that? Anybody with me on this? There's all two of you, okay, that are with me. All right. You know how you felt about that? That's a personal company. They don't care, and they're overcharging me. We all have horror stories. Or maybe, maybe you just got a harsh or unjust order from a boss or from a, a mean parent. Or sometimes young Christians, they'll look at the commands of the Bible and they'll think, God, that's kind of distasteful because they don't understand. Here's what Paul's doing. He's reminding them that Christ has a deep affection for you. He's telling you to stand firm and he's going to tell you to be firm, but it's because he loves you, because he cares about you, not because he's ordering you around, but because you're family. You're intimately related to the most incredible person in the universe. We forget who he is, do we not? I mean, a person, what we're focusing on right now, did more for you than any mom and any dad and any friend that ever lived. Christ has done more for you than anyone. So he says, my beloved brethren, Christ made you Philippians family. Why should you pursue Christ of chapter 3? Why should you stand firm in Christ in chapter 4? Because you're family. We're doing this together. Secondly, you're affectionately loved. You're affectionately loved. Look at he says in verse 1, the next phrase, the next encouragement, whom I long to see. Now, whom I long means greatly desired, super strong, very dear, yearned over, uh, earnest desire. In fact, the Greek text is desired ones, plus long to see is a, I like to say this word, hapax legomena. Do you know what that means? It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It means used once. Hopox legomena. Isn't that great? Say that word with me. Ready? Hopox legomena. Now you know a big word that nobody understands. It's perfect. It's found only here in the New Testament. And you know what it means? It means the deep pain. When he says long to see, it's the deep pain of separation from loved ones. You ever had that? The deep pain of separation from loved ones. Maybe if you're in the armed services or you're, you know, in, in the U.S., you're a part of the submarine corps, you go away for six months. If you're a soldier, sometimes you disappear for a year. There's a long separation. And that deep pain there, he says, that's, my longing is that deep. And he's reflecting his longing of the Philippians, but it's also indicative of Christ's longing for us. Paul, I love Paul, and you should love him too, because he was a brilliant theologian, he was a deep, deep, brilliant mind, but he was also blessed with an incredible ability to love people. And we love that about him. And it's a good model for us, right? That we should love one another in that same manner. In fact, Paul informs us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, that an affectionate longing heart can be demonstrated by everyday Christians. All of you, plus be shown by an entire church, not merely Paul. He says, Timothy, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, has brought us good news of your faith and love that you always think kindly of us, you all longing to see us just as we long to see you. That true longing is, is true of you and Christ. 
So Paul just reminded the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20, all genuine believers are eagerly waiting Christ's return, longing to see the Philippians, longing to see Christ. Paul says, verse 1, whom I long to see that comes from God saving you and transforming you. God changes your heart in such a way that it changes relationships. It does. The way you treat people, the way you think about people. You know why he does that? Who has been in the perfect relationship for all eternity? Anyone? God. When you think of the perfect relationship, you don't rush to mom and dad or some couple that you know or some superstar on you know, the media. When you think of the perfect couple or not the perfect relationship, not couple, you should think of the triune God. Because before there was anything in eternity past, he was in a perfect relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet one God. And in eternity future, he will be in the perfect relationship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And, perfect, and he said, I long for you all to be one as we are one. That that oneness and relationship and that love that exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit should be then indicative of us. Correct? So this longing is all based on the triune God. In fact, Romans 5.5 5 says, when God saves you, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This kind of longing can only be created in a heart by Christ. You say, well, I don't love people. I don't care about people. Then maybe you don't have a redeemed heart. Because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You have the resources of love in order to long to see someone, to grow an affection for others. Now understand, you can only stand firm because you are firmly held by Christ, right? Okay? And most importantly, because He loved you first. We love Him because He what? First loved us. So you're motivated to stand firm. And you know how it works. Here's one of the reasons. One of the reasons I didn't cheat at school. Want to know? One of the reasons I didn't cheat at school is because I had parents who loved me who would be devastated by that decision. One of the reasons I didn't cheat on my wife is because it, I, she loves me and because it would devastate her and devastate my children. Does that make sense? And why should you stand firm? Because you have a God that loves you. From eternity past, He chose you, called you, saved you, and made you His own. He loves you. And He paid the ultimate price to free you from sin. So that's why we should stand firm. He's talking about relationship here. This is why you do it because you love Him and He loves you. And Paul then adds one more to motivation to stand firm. You're eternally rewarded. He says in verse 1, you are my joy and my crown. You're eternally rewarded. Now this is awesome. He calls the Philippians his joy. Now Paul obviously didn't derive his joy from his circumstances, correct? Where's Paul right now? In a prison, you know, under arrest. So his circumstances are, are, his circumstances are not ideal, correct? And even after he writes this letter, he's you know, basically awaiting trial. It could lead to death. He thinks he's going to be released, and he was. But Paul actually tells you his joy comes from his fellow believers. You guys are my joy. And that's 3 John 4 as well. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. One more time. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. And he rejoiced in the churches, their salvation, their sanctification, their walking in truth, and their eventual perfection in heaven. And he says, you are my joy. Now let me help you understand this. Think about it. When you invest in other people, it could be Sunday school class, could be as you disciple someone, it can, as you have a Bible study. When you invest into others and they end up shining brightly for Christ, who gets the glory? God gets the glory, but you get the joy. You get the joy. And there's something really joyful about people that you've invested in who actually do, do significant things for Christ. That's a joyful thing, is it not? Sure, you're excited. You want to see that in your kids, obviously. But Paul calls the Philippians not only his joy, but his crown. His crown. He's speaking about future reward here. And there being his crown, basically Paul led them to Christ. He is the one who helped them mature in the faith. And so as they continue to follow Christ on earth, they represent, they guarantee Paul's future eternal reward. They're his crown. We make jokes about it, like his jewel in his crown, but it's, it's really a crown. And, 
And Paul reminds his readers they're going to face Christ in a future judgment. Now you will be judged to, by, for what you did with your life. You're not going to be judged over your sin. That fell on Christ. But you will be judged for reward. Now that is so plain in the New Testament you can't get around it. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Again, talking about my joy and my crown. Paul says elsewhere, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now we must, not an option, all, who's that include? Everybody. And you know what all means in the Greek? It means all. That's what it means right there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one of you individually, may be recompensed, paid back for the deeds in the body. You say, why in the body? Because when you're out of the body, it doesn't count anymore. This is the only time you can be rewarded. It's what you do right now while you're in this physical body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Now, good or bad is better translated useful or useless. You say, Chris, what makes a useful deed and what makes a useless deed? I'm going to help you. This is worth its weight in gold. Are you ready? Here it comes. If it's done for His glory and in His strength, it's rewardable. If it's done for your glory or in your strength, it's going to burn. Does that make sense? So you say, can I vacuum and be rewarded? Yes, you can. As long as you're vacuuming for the glory of God. And, and you're filled with the Spirit while you're vacuuming. Does that make sense? You say, well, no, it only counts for church stuff. No, it doesn't. Everything you do in life that is filled with the Spirit, under His strength, and done for His glory, it doesn't matter. If you're driving, it is, if it's done for His glory and in His strength, it's rewardable. Are, are you tracking this? Are you, some of you aren't believing me. You're looking at me like I'm some sort of strange person. All right? Understand, God doesn't divide up life into sacred and secular. We do. We're errant. Everything is worship, correct? As I offer myself. So if it's done for His glory, and it's done in His power, it's rewardable. There are going to be some people who are super faithful at that, and there are going to be people who are well-known up front who are not. Reward has to do with in whose power it is and whose glory it is. And that's what he's talking about here when he says crown. Those things done for your glory, your strength, being burned up, they're not going to last. Those things done for God's glory and in the strength of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit will be eternally rewarded. And these Philippians are Paul's joy and crown, his eternal smile and his trophy. And by implication, if the Philippians are faithful to stand firm, they'll receive God's eternal rewards as well. So what does it mean to stand firm? Let's wrap it up now. Number three in your outline, the requirements of God to stand firm. The requirements... The end of the verse 1 uh, ends this way. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, verses 1 through 9 are filled with commands, but this main command here is stand firm. And it's not an unusual command. I think in your outline there's a little box there that has a bunch of verses. Uh, Galatians 5.1, For it was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing what? Firm. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, For we now really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Second Thessalonians, So then, my brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. 1 Corinthians 15.58, My beloved brethren, be steadfast. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, uh, you know, Don't be those guys who uh, fall from their own steadfastness. Be firm. The Greek word stand firm, you want to write this down, means to... Hold one's ground. If you're in the military at any point in your life, you know what it means. Hold that ground. Maintain a position. Be steadfast. Be upright. Put your foot down. Be imperative. Command with almost a military ring to it. And if you know Greek history, Leonidas, you know, in the 300 against the, you know, the, the Persian million-man army. Stand firm. No matter what. They're not going to bend. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is our perfect example, is He not, for standing firm? Be steadfast and upright. He's the one who faced persecution, never compromised. He's the one who was tempted in all things but didn't sin. He faced the worst trial to ever occur and yet honored God through all of it. So if you're a student, you can walk away from something that's improper. If you're a man at work, you can look away when something's impure comes up. 
If you're a, a woman of God, you can basically choose to trust and not fear. You can stand firm. And that's what he's calling to. Anything else that hits you, whether it's persecution or pressure or the pushing by unsaved Gentile grace abusers or partitioned by division that's going on here in Philippi, doesn't matter. God's specific about standing firm. So let's look at what this really means practically. Are you ready? First in your outline, stand firm by honoring your status as a citizen of heaven. Right on the heels. Now, you're looking at your Bible. You're going chapter 4. Chris, what's the big deal referring back to chapter 3? Listen, when the Bible was first written, were there verses and chapters written in there? No, please say no. There weren't. So this is one letter. So he's right on the heels of, uh, you know, keep your focus and be a citizen of heaven. Stand firm. So what he's saying is, if you're going to stand firm, are you ready? Heaven must be more important than earth. Life later over life now. Got to be. You say, well, I'm older, that's easy. Well, when you're younger too. I don't get it. My wife, amazingly godly woman, when we got married, I was 24, she was 26. And from day one, she wanted to go to heaven. And it really used to bug me. I'm just being honest. Because I'm looking there going, hey, you got me. What do you want to go to heaven for? I get it now. I get it now. I want to go to heaven too. I do. I want to stay faithful. I want to run across the fishing line, finish line, but I want to go to heaven. I am not enamored with this planet. Anybody else with me on this? This planet does not offer me, you know, what my longing for. I, I have a home that I belong to that I haven't been to yet. And I want to get there. And standing firm means you act like it. You live like you belong in heaven, not on earth. You're, you're not in love with this world. You're in love with the next world. You're not enamored with the things. Now, you say, how do I know I'm living for heaven? Simple test. Are you ready? This is going to hurt. Okay, I am going to step on your air hose right now. All right? Two things. All you have to do is look at your schedule and look at your budget. Then you can tell whether you're living for heaven or earth. If there's large chunks of time that are given to heavenly purposes and you're walking in the Spirit with everything you do, and you're seeking to be a minister, represent Christ, that's a good spiritual sign. But if there's very little of that, that's a bad spiritual sign. Would you agree? It's a, you're a steward of your time. You're a steward of your money. If there's nothing being extended towards heaven, then that's a bad spiritual sign. Which world are you really enamored with? You've you got to face the reality of that. That's what the Scripture says. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so therefore, if you're not working for this planet, you're genuinely working for the world to come, that's good. You're standing firm. You've got to be heavenly minded to stand firm. It means your loyalties are clear. You stand for Christ in eternity, not devil in a fallen planet. Number two, secondly, standing firm by being unbending on God's Word. Being unbending on God's Word. Let me put it to you in a more practical way. I should have wrote these out practically in the first place. It means that God's Word is more important than any other word. God's Word is more important than any other word. Uh, he's warning the Philippians at the beginning of chapter 3 about doctrinal error, the dogs. He just warned them again about the error of legalism and libertinism at the end of chapter 3. After these warnings, he says, Stand firm! Don't bend, don't compromise, don't surrender under pressure, don't embrace error. Take God's Word and value it over any other teaching, any other instruction. Are you with me on this? You've got to say God's Word trumps everything. This is truth. Everything else falls short. And then he says, uh, thirdly, a way in which you manifest standing firm is stand firm in the Lord. Now let me... Put that practically, it says in verse 1, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And to stand firm means the Lord is your authority over all other authorities. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is the authority above all authorities. What he says goes and everything else is less. <laughs> okay? In the Lord is used 114 times in your New Testament. And it refers to be being a Christian. Being in the Lord or in Christ means you're a Christian. You're saved. You're born again. And it's used this way in the New Testament. Convinced in the Lord. Beloved in the Lord. Work hard in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Called in the Lord. Marry only in the Lord. 
faith in the Lord, hope in the Lord, trust in the Lord, harmony in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, exhort you in the Lord, as fitting in the Lord, die in the Lord, and firm in the Lord. Is that enough in the Lord's for you? There's a bunch of them. And the actual phrase, stand firm in the Lord, means stand in master. And in is the preposition, it means in the sphere of the master, in the sphere of Christ. All that he is and all that belongs to him, depending on him, through his spirit, by his word. And he's commanding you in the Philippians to rely on the Lord to stand firm. You need to be in Christ, in the Lord, and he has to have supreme authority over all. You love your husband, great, but you love Christ more. You love your wife, wonderful, but you love Christ more. He has greater authority in any relationship. And so when you're tempted to compromise or you're struggling with trusting Christ or you're concerned about a different theological position, what do you do? You choose to obey God's Word and you stand firm on that. Um, This, I'm sure, never happens in Australia, but it really happens a lot in Southern California. And that is young men particularly young men, because I spent a lot of time with young guys investing into them. And young guys, will they, they read blogs. Anybody read blogs here? Uh, blogs sometimes are good, and blogs sometimes are horrific. And Christian blogs, uh, there's like 10% really good, and about 90% that's poison. And these guys that I'm working with, they'll be tempted to read a blog. And what bloggers do that are bad, they'll take an obscure verse of the Bible, a really obscure verse, a weak one, hard verse to understand. And there's a few of those that are hard to understand. And they'll build an entire doctrine on that one verse. Even though that same concept is described 45 different ways in the New Testament that's really clear on the same topic. But they'll take the one that's unclear and say, see? Which is really bad hermeneutics. It's bad interpretation. It's bad. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippians is don't do that. Make sure that you're trusting in God's clear word over the obscure things that you may not understand. Does that make sense? So we need to be depending and standing firm in the Lord about Christ and about His word. Fourthly, stand firm together as a loving family. Now at the end of the verse... This is what he says. Now take a look. We're just trying to pick all of that chapter 4, verse 1 gives us. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he wraps it up this way. Look at it very carefully. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. And what's the last two words? My what? My beloved. He throws out a final relational term into this highly personal verse. He says, my beloved. And my beloved there is plural. He says, you all stand firm. One more time. He's saying, church, you do this together. Plural terms. The group is the focus, not the individual. You belong to a unique family. Together, you help each other stand firm. You ask questions about spiritual leaders, about doctrinal error. You depend on each other. You care for each other when you're heard or rejoicing. Um, So, can I, 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 this has nothing to do with me. It's just about my church, okay? So, I had nothing to do with it. But we had this program that the women, if somebody was sick, the women would, like, provide meals. You ever have a program like that? There's a group of gals that would put this together, okay? Interesting enough, what happened at our church is we had these community groups, and so people started caring for each other. So the women who were closest to the situation would just, just automatically start caring for the person who in their little community group needed help. And all of a sudden, they were caring for each other more than the program could. Like relationships. People were just caring for each other. And then I had gals coming up to me mad because they go, I wanted to help this family, and they were already full. You need to do something. But I'm like, no, I think that's what's supposed to happen. People are supposed to care for each other automatically without a program. And we don't have a program anymore to care for people because people already care for each other. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here. My beloved, you help each other stand firm. You just do it automatically. Somebody's struggling, you just come alongside. And it says in Galatians 6, you, you bear them up. You hold them up. You care for them. It actually, the word means to carry them. You ever had that? Somebody who's just, you're so weak, you're so strong, you're so beat up, they just carried you through the trial. Right? That's what he's talking about. Be that church. 
Yeah, carry your own load, but also bear one another's burdens. And most importantly, fire each other up to pursue Christ, stay on track, endure to the end, and stand firm. You see, Chris, how is this going to affect our relationships? How is this going to change our relationships? Come tomorrow morning. You'll be blown away. Verses 2 and 3. You're going to see it. You see, well, how, how will this really affect my influence and, and witness in the world? Come tomorrow afternoon. It's going to blow you away. You say, well, how will this affect my mind and how I think? Then you've got to come Sunday morning. Standing firm affects all aspects of life. So let's wrap it up. Standing firm is surrender. I ready? Surrender. What do you mean that? If you're standing firm, that means that's someone who has surrendered to Christ. Have you surrendered to Christ? You can't be firm for Christ unless you're in Christ, correct? The most unhappy person in this room tonight, the most unhappy person is the person who's trying to live for Christ without Christ. You can't do it. You can't do it. And you will be miserable until you turn from your sin in repentance and depend on Christ alone by faith and you cry out to God to make that happen. Standing firm means toughening up, toughening up. You know, hit the spiritual gym, set some challenges, uh, decide to get discipled, read a solid book, study God's word, grow deep, read a theology that really hurts your head when you read it. You know, do something that really stretches yourself. Standing firm is maturity. Instead of being like most churchgoers today who are Tossed to and fro, Ephesians 4.14, here and there by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Stop being children. So when it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everybody, make it your goal not to be unruly, <laughs> not to be faint-hearted, not to be the weak, but be those who stand firm. Be those who stand on God's Word, know the truth, and will not compromise it doctrinally or practically. And finally, standing firm is habits. Standing firm is habits. Those who stand firm have awesome habits they practice. They put themselves in situations where every week they have to do the same thing so that they will be disciplined to pursue Christ. That's why people join ministries and why they join Bible studies and why they do studies together so they're in the discipline of doing it. Because every single one of us in this room wants to be lazy. Okay, We want to not accomplish those things. Sometimes we're so disciplined with other things that we're not disciplined with spiritual things. Be disciplined with spiritual things. The secret to a godly life. You say, what are they? In order to learn that, you've got to come back tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this brief introduction of what it means to stand firm. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to desire you in a greater way. And Father, we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We thank you for being present here. We pray that if there's any hearts here that don't know you, that you begin to work on their heart, free them up, help them to see their sinfulness, that they would be able to turn from their sin and follow you and for the rest of us, that we might be all the more committed to standing firm on your truth. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And all God's people said, Amen.